Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life. But there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there. friends and welcome to the Seeker Podcast, that service of change where we challenge reality, question out what you've been taught in hopes of inspiring a new direction of thought to bring about change. I'm your host, Dennis Nappy II with Service of Change. Today, I want to talk about the importance of finding that happy place in life when doing your searches for truth, when looking at the world unfold around us and how difficult and challenging and overwhelming things can seem at times. I've had some... Uh, I guess eye-opening experiences or reopening experiences over the past week or so uh, that really put things into a, a different perspective for me once again. So I just want to talk a little bit about that because it's important. The world can seem so dark and gloomy and, and uh, terrible at times, and, and sometimes it is, uh, but I think we need to find ways to uh, embrace the good times as well, and that's kind of been my theme all week. Uh, I missed the show last week. It was uh, in celebration of my brother's wedding. It was a fantastic time, uh, hence where some of this is coming from. So, been a lot going on. I set, it's, let's see, it's 5.25, Saturday, May 20th. Normally, I record my shows before Saturday, but since the baby was born, things have been uh, a little bit difficult to get the show in when I'd like to. Last night, it was about 8.30, finally got my other two down to bed, and... My wife was feeding the baby, and she looks up, and all of a sudden the baby throws up a little bit on my wife, so I picked her up, and then she threw up all over me and just everywhere, so it was one of those one of those nights, and then she was fussy for the next two hours, and while I'm cleaning up the baby, my son comes running in in his pajamas, and he says, Daddy, Daddy, Penny, that's my other daughter's name, Penny says I have a chicken pock, I don't have a chicken pock, Penny says I have a chicken pock, so he's going off about a chicken pock, and then Penny comes in, she says, No, Daddy, he messed up my bed. It was just one of those parent moments, and I had to sit back and laugh because it just went from so relaxed, so chill, I'm getting ready to go do my show, to uh, chaos with the kids. I used to say by 10 o'clock, uh, my wife ended up taking back over, got all three kids to sleep, and I just I was sitting in bed. I had passed out, so... My daughter was up at about 4.30 this morning. I fed her a bottle and said, you know what, let me jump on the airwaves and do the show because it's been too long. It's, I hate my uh, the inconsistency that I've had. I know I've missed. I think this is the second week that I've missed since my daughter's been born, but I'm sure all of you out there, especially those with children, understand how challenging that can be at times. Let's look at some of the news stories that I've come across. There's been a lot of stuff. There's a lot of drama. You know, I, I'm not going to get into the 
official press releases with the Trump stuff. I'm not going to read from those articles, but I, I shared something on Instagram last week. Donald Trump's under some hot water. This is why we need to be critical consumers of what's what's coming our way. I got an alert on my phone, and it said, Trump discussed classified information with the Russians. That was the CNN headline. And my th- initial thought was, yes, so what? Presidents do that all the time. Diplomats do that all the time. Intelligence agencies do that all the time. We share information. There's a, a, uh, a, a caveat or a classification heading. It's called no foreign, N-O-F-O-R-N. It's like no foreign intelligence can see it. So the fact that we have that classifier, that, that, that heading, that shows, okay, this information is for U.S. only, means that there is classified information that is able to be shared. So the fact, and CNN never addressed it. So I knew from the first headline that this was, as Trump, Trump is calling it, it's a witch hunt. So, so what if he disclosed classified information? There are things we're allowed to share. And none of that was ever brought up. They never even brought that up as a possibility. Maybe Trump shared something he shouldn't have. I don't know. I don't know the specifics of what he said. But let's not just fall for the... I mean, I know it's not just me. Because I'm not that smart of a guy. But when I, like, when I see people getting all wrapped around the axle about this stuff, it doesn't make any sense. Just because it's a heading, just because it's a big heading... Avoid that emotional response that they're going for. It's so blatant now how obvious they are misleading the public. I've said it a thousand times. I don't like the guy. I do not like Donald Trump. But I dislike the media even more, and they're playing games. So keep your eyes open. Do your homework. Do your research. Take everything with a grain of salt. All right, this one, this article I want to get into here. Uh, I could do a whole show on this. This is scary stuff here. Android apps secretly tracking users by listening to inaudible sound hidden in adverts. Now, researchers say the technique can even be used to de-anonymize Tor users. I'm not sure what that means. Hang on. Let's see here. Uh, You know, and when I play these, when I'm I'm reading these on my computer, you've got these pop-up ads that just play sound in the background. It's very annoying. All right. Where are we at here? Uh... Over recent years, companies have started hiding beacons, ultrasonic audio signals inaudible to humans in their adverts in order to track devices and learn more about their owners. Electronic devices equipped with microphones can register these sounds, allowing advertisers to uncover their location and work out what kinds of ads their owners watch on TV and which other devices they own. The technique can be used to de-anonymize Tor users. Okay, I don't know what Tor is. I probably should, but I don't know what Tor is. Throughout our empirical study, we confirmed the audio beacons can be embedded in sound such that mobile devices spot them with high accuracy while humans do not perceive the ultrasonic signals consciously, reads the report from researchers at Technical University Braunschweig in Germany. They found that while six apps were known to be using ultrasound cross-device tracking technology in April 2015, this number grew to 39 by December 2015 and housing increased increased to 234. It named specific programs, but says that several have millions of downloads. I'm sorry, it did not name specific programs, but there's millions of downloads, are part of reputable companies, including McDonald's and Krispy Kreme. They embed these beacons in the ultrasonic frequency range between 18 and 20 kilohertz of audio content, 
and detect him with regular mobile applications using device's microphone, the research add. Now, I remember watching one of the original Snowden interviews, and he talked about the importance of disabling your microphone and then carrying that headset around that the iPhone comes with that you can plug in that has the microphone. So when you want the audio to transmit, then you can do it that way. But this is the stuff I'm talking about. It's not always the government that's going to be the worst thing. It's usually the advertisers and marketing. They want to know where you are, what commercials you're listening to, and what other, who knows what else, because they compile that data and develop a profile based on you. They then target advertising based on what you are listening to and what commercials you're watching. So it's not that they're listening to everything in that commercial. They have a specific tone that they will hide in the background of some kind of commercial that's played on a specific channel at a specific location. You know, you could go to a baseball game and they may have a specific tone in there and then they might say, okay, like one of the commercials that plays over the airwaves, and they might say, okay, how many hits did we get there? They go, oh, we got 4,000 hits today. There's only 5,000 people there. We are going to start investing money and targeting ads in this location. But what else can that be used for? That's really scary. That's another way in which they are tracking us where they don't have to use GPS necessarily. They just say, we know this is played at this location. We know this phone was here at this time. And now they have data about your location and where you were and possibly what you may have been watching. So this is something I think we need to be very mindful of. And I do take it as a violation of privacy. I really do. Next article comes to us from the New Economy. Death spiral for cars. By 2030, you probably won't own one. By 2030, you probably won't own a car, but you may get a free trip with your morning coffee. Transport as a service will use only electric vehicles and will upend a $2 trillion industries. It's the death spiral for cars. A major new report predicts that by 2030, the overwhelming majority of consumers will no longer own a car. Instead, they will use on-demand electric autonomous vehicles. By 2030, within 10 years of regulatory approval of autonomous electrical vehicles, or AEVs, the report says 95% of all passenger miles traveled will be served by on-demand autonomous electric vehicles that will be owned by fleets rather than individuals. Concerning for a lot of reasons. Now, Elon Musk has already talked about um, you know, the transportation industry going under due to the automated driving systems. I know Dubai is, is uh, rolling out its first unpiloted or unmanned drone taxi service. Um, Amazon has their drones that they're testing for package delivery for their prime users in certain areas. This is coming. This is not a secret. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is projected tech that's already created. They're now just working out the bugs and fine-tuning it and getting all the approval that they need for this to happen. So self-driving vehicles are already here. They expect this industry to take off. Now, here's my, I guess one of the things I think might be potential stopping block is the oil industry. We know they've got their claws in everything and they manipulate everything. So they're not going to allow this to happen unless they find a way to turn a profit. So either they're going to find a way to keep these vehicles dependent on oil and gas, or you're going to start, after you do some digging, you start seeing these oil companies investing in this alternative tech, in this alternative industry, so they can once again corner the market. Now, a lot of us may think, hey, this is a great idea, and it does have some very appealing benefits, but I say all the time, it is a consumer that's going to drive technology that's ultimately going to be the end of us. And that's what's scary to me, is that if we can become completely dependent on cars to get us from point A to point B, that is putting AI, and it's putting technology, in, or 
whoever owns that technology, i.e. the government or a major corporation, in charge of our ability, our freedom of movement. If they decide, hey, there's a, quote, emergency, those false flag researchers, we're restricting movement right now. Well, now you may find yourself stranded without the ability to drive yourself somewhere, without your ability to resist that call to stay in place and go where you think it might be safe. So we're giving up freedom when we turn that over. Now, if there's a car that gives you the ability to self-drive or autopilot, like in the movie Demolition Man, you could drive it yourself or you could have the computer take over, that might be a nice compromise between the two, as long as you can always have that kill switch to shut off the AI. I think that is essential for us as we move forward with this AI. We need to have a kill switch on that AI that we as the consumers have access to. Keep that in mind because I, I think that this is, is spot on. We are going to start seeing this coming our direction. All right, this one comes to us from Quartz.com. China is creating a massive Orwellian DNA database by Echo Huang. In the name of safeguarding its 1.4 billion people, China has been collecting biometric information from millions of people who it deems potential threats, among them uh, Uyghurs, migrant workers, and college students as part of a national DNA database. China's Ministry of Public Security, which oversees the database, has amassed information for more than 40 million people. The country says it has the world's biggest database on DNA information. As of 2015, according to a report published by Human Rights Watch, Monday, May 15th, for comparison, in the U.S., the FBI's National DNA Index has 12.7 million offender profiles. Mass DNA collection by the powerful Chinese police absent effect privacy protections or an independent judicial system is perfect storm for abuses, said Sophie Richardson, China director at HRW. China is moving its Orwellian system to the genetic level. This is concerning, again, on a, on a lot of different ways because it's just another way to track you and to build your profile. Now, let's take this another uh, step further. We know that they're enhancing their ability to clone genetic material. They now have, at least publicly, an, a, uh, a uterus, a fake uterus, that can grow babies under 23 weeks of age. We're getting pretty darn close to that uh, matrix scenario where you're growing creatures, humans, in test tubes. Now, if they have your DNA, they could potentially grow you, they could grow a part of you, and then use that to plant it somewhere else later to accuse you of something if you get too far down the rabbit hole. The possibilities are endless. China is continuing to oppress its people. We know that Facebook, I did the show on this a while ago, had developed algorithms for China to better limit what its people were learning and seeing through platforms like Facebook. So it's really doing a lot of, as the article says, Orwellian type of stuff. Proceed with extreme caution. This one comes from us from Fox 5 DC. Family's private investigator, there's evidence Seth Rich had contact with WikiLeaks prior to his death. Uh, let's see, we want to update you on a story that we first saw on Fox 5 DC. We want to make an important clarification on claims that were made by Rod Wheeler, the private investigator hired by Seth Rich's family, of whose services are being paid for by a third party. What he told Fox 5 DC on camera Monday regarding Seth Rich's murder investigation is in clear contrast to what he has said over the last 48 hours. Rod Wheeler has since backtracked. In an interview on Monday, Wheeler told Fox 5 DC he had sources of the FBI confirming there was evidence 
of communication between Seth Rich and WikiLeaks. This is the verbatim of that exchange. You have sources at the FBI saying that there's information. Wheeler, for sure. Fox 5. That could link Seth Rich to WikiLeaks. Wheeler, absolutely, yeah, that's confirmed. In the past 48 hours, Rod Wheeler has told other media outlets that he did not get his information from FBI sources, contradicting what he told us on Monday. Since Rod Wheeler backtracked Tuesday, Fox 5 DC attempted incessantly to communicate with him, but he did not return calls or emails. On Wednesday, just before our newscast, Wheeler responded to our request via telephone conversation, where he now backtracks his position and Wheeler characterized his on-the-record and on-camera statements as miscommunication. When asked if Wheeler is still working for Seth Rich's family, Wheeler told Fox 5 DC, The contract still stands. Ties have not been severed. Reached out once again to the Rich family and through a spokesperson, the Rich family tells Fox 5 DC, The, the family has relayed their deep disappointment with Rod Wheeler's conduct over the past 48 hours and exploring legal avenues for the family. Okay. This is the first I'm reading this change to the story. When I when I pulled this article, uh, it, it had an initial story, which they have the original story here on the, on the link below, but it was all about this guy, a real or private investigator, claiming that this man was, he was a D.C. staffer, uh, who had leaked information. It was claiming he had contact with WikiLeaks. And that, again, he said high-level sources at the FBI uh, were telling him that they were told to stand down, that the police department was told, told to stand down in D.C. And uh, because of this WikiLeaks investigation, that this went higher, you know, insinuating there was some kind of shadow government thing going on. So again, I'm going to say, what the hell is going on here? Was this private investigator actually onto something and then told to be quiet and now he's retracting his story? Or is he blowing smoke? Or is he part of another deception campaign? You just don't know who to trust anymore. Now, again, I've said it in previous shows, talking about what's going on with Tom DeLonge and David Wilcox uh, and Corey Good with their claims that uh, you know Antarctica is housing alien civilizations or ancient advanced technologies. We need to see your sources at this point, or we need to see compelling evidence of what you're saying. If you don't want to compromise your sources, you need to give us more than just, well, somebody in the government told me, because that's not impressive anymore. You can claim your sources all you want, but unless you can show us the evidence, it means nothing. So is that what happened here? Did, this, did he get threatened? Did he retract his story? Or is he just making stuff up and spinning this conspiracy even deeper? I do not know. We don't know what to trust anymore. Uh, initially, this story read like it was something more than now it, now it is. The water has been muddied. Let's move on. The New York Times focus turns to North Korea's sleeper cells as possible culprits of the cyber attack. In Seoul, South Korea, they take legitimate jobs as software programmers in the neighborhoods of their home country, North Korea, when the instructions from Pyongyang came for a hacking assault. They are believed to split into groups of three or six, moving around to avoid detection. Ever since the 80s, reclusive North Korea has been known to train cadres of digital soldiers to engage in electronic warfare and profiteering. Exploits against its perceived enemies, most notably South Korea and the United States. In more recent years, cybersecurity experts say the North Koreans have spread these agents across the border into China and other Asian countries to help cloak their identities. The strategy also amounts to war contingency planning in case the homeland is attacked. Now this force of North Korean cyber hacking sleeper cells is under new scrutiny in connection with this ransomware assaults that have roiled much of the world over the past four days. 
New signs have emerged not only that North Koreans carried out the attacks, but also that targeted victims included China, North Korea's benefactor, and enabler. This continues on. I'll have the show notes up. Here's the thing. North Korea has definitely presented itself as a major security force when it comes to, or security threat, when it comes to cyber security and cyber terrorism. We know, or we believe, we've been told, let me correct myself, they've been responsible for attacks in the past. This article sounds fascinating. It sounds highly likely, but again, are they using this as an opportunity to build the excuse for war with North Korea? Again, I'm taking it with a grain of salt. Um, we have a whole lot of them saying there's evidence that North Korea has this, but where are we really getting the proof from? We know that through the Vault 7 dumps from WikiLeaks, CIA has the ability to mask uh, you know, their identity and pose as other countries throughout the world. So we know that a technology is out there. How do we as the public know that North Korea is in fact behind these, besides you telling us this, besides a government official saying North Korea did it? What evidence do you have? I'm not a hacker. I'm not a computer guy. But you need to find a way to show me, the American consumer, what evidence you have in a way that I can understand and verify on my own. Because frankly, we just don't trust you anymore. And that's a big part of the problem. And why is this significant? When I covered my Vietnam stuff, when I covered my World War I stuff, if we end up at war again, they're going to want public support, public opinion. I'm not going to be bought that easily. I'm not going to be bought at all. But this is the type of stuff they use to convince the public that a major war that will cause thousands, possibly millions of deaths is necessary. The other thing I thought interesting, uh, you know, North Korea with their nuclear capabilities, they're, they're seeming more and more like a nuclear threat um, that, you know, again, is that information strictly being spun or do they have something to it? A, a recent article I read, and I, I can't remember the source of it right now. Here I am breaking my own rules. I'll see if I can find it for the show notes. But it talked about North Korea having a possible EMP weapon. And one of the most recent failures talked about how the missile went up and then it exploded in the air and, it, and we were calling it a failure, but our... Uh, EMP expert within the government was saying that actually the altitude in which this weapon detonated was the ex exact altitude it would need to detonate to cause a massive EMP that would wipe out the U.S. civilian grid. So this might have been a demonstration of North Korea's capability to activate an EMP over U.S. soil because the weapon was in fact capable of reaching the U.S. They just detonated mid-flight in the air, uh, you know. I think, to demonstrate that they could use an EMP. So this is a real possibility as well. All right, let me see. Is there anything else I want to get to that's of, of major interest? Uh, we see that Chelsea Manning was released from prison. I'll have that article up in the show notes. Uh, something a little bit more positive. This comes to us from Yahoo.com. UK survey finds 28,000 plant species for medical use. More than 28,000 species of plants around the world have a medical use, but poor documentation means people are not making the most of the health benefits, according to a survey released on Thursday. No kidding. We're not making use of it because that information is usually repressed. Britain's Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew in London recorded 28,107 species in its latest annual survey and said it was probably a very conservative figure. New plants discovered over the past year include nine species of climbing vine used in the treatment of Parkinson's disease, the survey found. The report is highlighting the huge potential that there is for plants in areas like diabetes and malaria, said Monique Simmons. 
who's the deputy director of science at the world-famous botanical group. The report said two plants, Artemisin and Kinye, are among the most important weapons against malaria, which killed over 400,000 people in 2015. Despite their potential, just 16% of the plants Q recorded as being for medical use are cited in regulatory publications. 16%, yet people die every day. Q's expansive gardens in West London and vast botanical botanic collections containing over 8.5 million items are listed as UNISOC World Heritage Site. The institution's second annual State of the World's Plants report involved 128 scientists from 12 countries who since the first survey had discovered 1,730 new plant species. They include five new species of manahat found in Brazil, seven new asphalus plants used for making South African rubus tea, and a new portion of species uncovered in Turkey. Uh, you know, it goes on to talk about this. I'm not going to bore you all with the details, uh, but they look at, let's see, yeah, read, you can read the rest on your own. The question is, and we know the answer to this, if we know that these simple plants that you can grow on your own in your backyard for pennies can cure so many of these life-threatening diseases, why isn't this being pushed out? Why isn't this being taught in every single school? Why aren't we learning herbal medicine as students? Because this is something we can learn to make tinctures, to make brews, to make salves, to make all this stuff that can help us. Instead, they refer us, go get a pill. Because pharma represses this information. This is highly important. This is revolution, non-violent revolution here. Start learning your plants and how they can help you. This will change the world. Too easy. All right, let me move on. I feel like I've been long-winded today, but I've been off the air for a while. Uh, you know, I want to talk about really just the importance of being happy because I, I covered some heavy stuff on the show today. There's some heavy stuff going on around the world, and, and I found that since... I've really been pushing this show hard for the last year, save for the last two months when I've had just so much going on. I've still been involved in the show, but it's been a little bit difficult to stay on top of it the way I like to. And I realized this weekend just how heavy this information is, and I try to keep it light, but it just keeps me focused on, wow, where is this world going? There's so much negativity out there, and in doing my shows, I try to keep that balance but I feel that lately there's just been so much heavy things that have been going on. I don't know if I've been drugged down. Maybe I'm just worn out and beat up because I've got a lot on my plate right now and so tired. I've just felt drained. And this weekend, I you know, I had to write a speech for my brother. And part of my motivation, I listened to you know, I wanted to talk about our father who passed about four years ago. And part of the motivation that I got into is I watched some home movies that we have, and I listened to a certain song that reminds me of my dad, and it always makes me cry. But I needed to get in touch with that emotion. And some things happened this weekend on an energetic level for me, uh, what some would call on a spiritual level. Um, I connected with something. I connected with something really powerful that I haven't experienced in a very long time, and it really Open, I realized I had blockages, energetic blockages in me, and we all experienced these. Despite doing yoga, despite doing Reiki, that just kept me balanced, that kept me level, that kept me functioning. It didn't keep me, on, on the one sense, alive, feeling all there is to feel out there. Writing that speech and talking about it, it, it forced me not to be sad, but to remember how much I love my father and how much fun I had with the man. 
I, I, can't, I can't explain all of it, but I opened up. I opened up in a way, I, I it just is, it's overwhelming. Over the weekend, watching my brother get married and celebrating with him, uh, it, it just opened me up and I should have been exhausted. It was a weekend long event. It was at a campground. It was pouring rain. It was cold. Uh, we had challenge after challenge in getting this off the ground and I laughed the whole time and, and still got it done. We still got him married. Uh, you know, and, and it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience despite the rain, despite the cold. It didn't bother me in the least. I just felt in my element that weekend. Uh, and it really got me thinking when I was younger, uh, when I was, you know, training to become a police officer, when I was a soldier, I had two odd role models besides, you know, Bruce Lee, who's a martial artist and I love his philosophy two of my role models one of them was as silly as it sounds if you ever watch the old ninja turtle movies it was michelangelo and the reason being when the excuse my language when the shit would hit the fan he was making jokes he would he would keep it light he'd be humorous as he's beating up the foot clan that they're coming in there he's laughing about what he's doing not laughing because it's violent but he's laughing to keep it light and I, that always fascinated me and I'm going to get into why in a minute, but my other one was Bill Murray as his character portrayed in the movie Ghostbusters. Pretty much any character Bill Murray portrays. But in Ghostbusters, he always brought a level of sarcasm or of just this calm, dry humor when things went bad. When he got slimed in the first Ghostbusters, they asked him, are you okay? And he just calmly looked up and said, he slimed me. But it's the way he said it. It was meant with humor. Because then he goes, I feel so funky. But he's he's not laughing about it, but it's a sarcastic delivery, meaning he finds the humor in the situation as much as it sucks. He finds a way to say it's terrible. You know, there's a, it, it, you know they, they portray that at the end of the movie when the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man blows up and there's marshmallow everywhere. Everybody comes out covered in marshmallow He's got like one or two globs on him, you know, and it, and it just adds to the humor that is, that is, that's Bill Murray. Somehow he avoided all that explosion and is able to go out and just bring that comic relief to him. You know, and the last memory I have of him is when he was in Ghostbusters 2, all the Ghostbusters are getting electrocuted and everybody's going, Ray, are you okay? No. Winston, how are you? I can't move. Egon, oh, I can't move. It hurts. And they go to Bill Murray, they say... <laughs> Are you okay? And he just looks up and he goes, I'm fine. Like, no kidding, I'm not okay. But why are you asking me that question? Obviously, we're all paralyzed from this electricity right now. I've always tried to hold on to that in a tense situation. I always try, and, and I'll tell my, my family, I'll tell you, I annoy the crap out of them. But I always try to make a joke when something is bad, not an inappropriate joke. Just an unexpected joke, just to make light of a situation. And I did it as a cop, you know. And, and I'm remembering when I was in the police academy. I, I have my book service here. I want to read a, an excerpt from it from my buddy Daryl. They did this exercise when we were in training in the beginning of the academy. They, they used to say, "Do the cockroach." And we'd have to get down and we'd put our arms up in the air, lift our heads up, lift our legs up off the ground. It would work your abs. And they would hold us in that position for a while, just to you know to work out and the stuff that the mind games they do to mess with you. Uh, let's see. So it says, the morning continued with shouting and exercise. We ran, we dropped, and we stood in line and sounded off. We were done. We did it some more. In the afternoon, we were sent to the classroom for instruction. 
Later find the majority of our days would be spent in the classroom for instruction with 15-minute exercise breaks every hour in the gym and an occasional thrashing for our infractions. Toward the end of the first day, as we were lining up in the hallway, an instructor shouted, Cockroach! I did not see the instructor because I was intentionally positioned at the back of the line. The hallway was shaped like an L, and I was behind the corner, out of sight in the instructor's, where I was safest. We dropped immediately, and I saw Daryl lying on his back next to me. He looked at me and smiled. I love this, he whispered sarcastically and laughed. We both smiled. He put his feet down and relaxed for a second. The instructors were still around the corner, and if we were out of, and we were out of sight, we both laughed because we knew putting our feet down would constitute a major infraction and probably get us smoked for a good hour. The instructor turned the corner, but Daryl had already, already picked up his feet. As the instructor glared in our direction, Daryl twisted his face to look as if he was really feeling the burn. During the first couple days in the academy, I realized that Daryl often ended up near me when we'd be getting dropped or in trouble. I always tried to find a spot where I'd not be seen, not to avoid the exercise, but to avoid being noticed. Daryl, it seemed, had the same philosophy. He was a Marine Corps vet and switched over to the Army Reserves where he was in the criminal investigator with the Criminal Investigation Division, or CID. I knew from my experience that his training was similar to my counterintelligence training. I also learned that Daryl was a former cop from D.C. Needless to say, this training was just another day at the office for him. Together, we developed an unspoken agreement that it was important to find the humor in every situation. The more stressful the circumstances, the more important it was to make someone laugh, even if it was only each other. We adopted sarcastic sayings that we would recite to each other and our classmates that eventually became our quiet battle cries whenever we would face, were faced with a punishing task at the demands of our drill instructors. Our favorite saying was, that's good training. Daryl started saying it when we would spend long periods of time performing the pointless cockroach. We knew the cockroach had no real tactical application, and at times it was downright humiliating when we would be forced to do it in front of visiting instructors and other officers. But instead of getting angry, we would remind each other that it was good training. This was then followed by laughter, which was then complicated by the fact that we were not supposed to be talking, let alone laughing, while being dropped. We knew if the instructors hurt us, we'd be punished even harder. But according to Daryl, this would result in more good training and then result in even harder laughter. When one would recite our slogan, the other one would usually follow up with something like, I love doing this. I hope we can do it all day. Eventually, the entire recruit class would remind each other that our late hours, punishments, and embarrassing moments were all good training, and our sarcastic statement and laughter brought us motivation when faced with a challenge. It's funny because I remember at the end, my drill instructor, who's an Army veteran, he's a SWAT guy, great guy, he said to us, he goes, you know, this was one of the, the this class gelled faster than many than most classes do. We really clicked in that class, and part of it, I, you know, is is to Daryl's philosophy and my philosophy, and, and you know, the the the, the outlook that we all adopted was that everything can be funny, even in the face of serious things, and we we have shed our tears as as cops, we definitely have. We found a way to laugh about everything, and one day Daryl and I developed an SOP, Standard Operating Procedure, for the recruit class, and we created a, th a theme for every single day of the week, Monday through Friday. We always call Miserable Mondays. This is in my book. Miserable Monday was a day that we can, it was, the, it was a day we could reflect on uh, the end of the weekend and think about the thrashings that we're about to receive. It was okay for us to be nervous on that day. We gave them that day. You could be nervous because we were upset, and they had to be worried about what we called Dime Dropping Tuesday. 
It was a day we were authorized to provide the academy staff with derog- I'm reading from my book again with derogatory information concerning other recruits' shortcomings, failures, and any other action. The target of such a dime drop, however, cannot get mad or hold a grudge against the actual dime dropper. Dime dropping Tuesday is the only day in which such activities are authorized among recruits. So the thing is, they talk about the thin blue line, just loyalty. You don't rat on your friends. You never get each other in trouble. You keep your mouth shut. So this goes against everything. This is why this was funny, because we made an, we took an oath amongst the recruits that we're going to snitch on one another only on Tuesdays because it was funny. So we were, we were giving up the ability, we were allowing ourselves to get each other in trouble. And the, on the first day that we instituted this dime dropping Tuesday, it was a disaster because we just ratted each other out for everything, every little, every little infraction that we almost, we almost got caught with what it was that we were trying to do. Um, you know, the instructor would say something like, what the heck happened here? I'd say something, you know, Drill sergeant, I don't know, but you might want to talk to Daryl. He may have some more knowledge on that, and then it would fo- send the focus on him, and it was it was just bad. Uh, so each day of the week had a different theme of how we would kind of cope with the stress of what was going on, but the biggest threat was watch out for Tuesday because we're going to get you in trouble. And we just learned to laugh over everything because there's a lot of BS you go through when you're in a training academy, and that's, that's by design. It's, you know, it's part of the process. But we found a way to laugh about it. So I went through sharing that process. Because life is hard. I spoke with one of my students yesterday who was telling me, life sucks, life's miserable. I said, you know, I, I probed a little bit. I said, well, why do you say that? Well, people get shot and people die. Okay. Do you know anybody that got shot and died? Yes. Did you ever witness it? Yes. He watched his brother get shot and killed just two years ago. So he has that outlook that I had when my father died, that the world is junk. The world is designed against us. The world is a horrible place. It's a farm. It's a plant designed to make us as miserable as possible. And yes, you know what? That might be true. The world may be designed to elicit misery. It may be designed to enact suffering on all life on this planet. I have certainly found enough evidence to make that argument in my book, Food for the Archons. But you know what else I have found? We do have a choice. Once we open our minds and understand how this system works, we have a choice to move away from that system. We also have a choice to experience a hardship, but to experience it in a way that we can make light of it, deal with it, move on, and keep having a good time. And I think that has been my message all week to myself, is finding ways to find the humor and find the fun in what may be a stressful situation. It can be done. I have done it time and again. I feel that the past few months, because I've had so much on my plate, it has been more difficult for me to do so. But I reconnected with that energy this week. I hope I can hold on to that energy because I know I still have a lot going on in my world. But as of right now, I'm keeping it light. I'm enjoying the laughter whenever I can. And I've found that I'm connecting with my friends and family even better because I tend to withdraw, especially when I have this heavy stuff going on that I talk about in my show. I get so wrapped up into it. I feel that I don't have time to go and to connect and to goof off and to be silly because this stuff is important. So we need to find that balance. Keep doing your search for truth. Keep, I'm sorry, keep searching for truth. Keep dissecting this matrix that we live within. Keep finding that understanding. But at the end of the day, when this journey, this temporal existence in the physical form comes to an end, 
We need to be able to look back and say, I enjoyed it. Otherwise, what is this all about? Why are you fighting? Why are you finding answers? Why are you trying to uncover the corruption that's out there? Is it to be miserable and angry? Or is it to say, screw you, I'm still going to have a good time despite the oppression you're trying to instill in us. Despite your attempts to crush my human spirit, you will not do it. I'm still having a good time. I am laughing in your face all the way home. That is part of the resistance because on an energetic level, that changes the desired output of negativity anyway, if you can find a way to laugh through that situation. Now, I'm not saying bad stuff doesn't happen. I'm not saying bad stuff isn't going to happen. But I believe we can soften the blow, and I believe we can curb a lot of the negativity as well if we can adopt more of a, uh, a Bill Murray or Michelangelo or even Daryl uh, type of philosophy in finding the humor in those tense situations. It's not easy to do. Sometimes you may offend some people, but I, I challenge you to work hard at doing that. So that's uh, that's where I'm going to stop right here. It's 6 a.m. I'm going to see if I can take another nap before my children wake up, but I wanted to make sure I got this show recorded today because I love being on the air. Uh, I love connecting with all of you. Again, I still have some emails out there that I need to get back to. Um, I, I will get to it. I, it. Like I said, things have been crazy for me. My schedule is slowing down within the next three weeks. I look forward to it. I look forward to greater content coming out. The new platform is still in the works. Like I said, things just got busy, uh, but it is coming. So please stay tuned. Please subscribe to the secret newsletter at serviceofchange.com. You can also find the link if you enjoyed what you heard from my book, Service, A Soldier's Journey, Counterintelligence, Law Enforcement, and the Violence of Urban Education. You can find that at serviceofchange.com slash bookstore or online at Amazon, wherever books are sold. And don't forget to get your free ebook, I Am Human and We Are Not Who We Think We Are, by subscribing to the secret newsletter at serviceofchange.com. I'm Dennis Nappy II with Service of Change, where small changes among the masses can have a massive impact around the world. I encourage you to be that change, never stop questioning, and keep an open mind. Thank you. Seekers.